You won't believe this, but one dark night as I was driving home, just around this bend, there sat a spaceship just as big as you please, right in the middle of the road. As I stopped my wheels and unlatched my crate, the gate to that ship slowly opened, and out come a flock of chicks singing. space at 965,000 miles an hour. And I said to the pilot, honey, ain't you speeding just a little? No, Mr. Earthman, I thank you. Keep away from me. Now quit that. No. Space crate open, and there before my eyes stood thousands of chicks yelling. You know, I mean, um, <laughs> Be Polonia, 1963, Glenn Mooney, and at the end of the cast, which is number 354, we will hear My Little Martian by Floyd Robinson. Did you know these songs exist? Well, the um, theme is to carry through just a little bit, but in a hopefully, uh, well, I I hope I can say deeper way, the theme of uh, The Monster Swim, because the theme is unaccepted and unusual encounters with the supernatural that could in fact be true, which the world, which is really the province of the the devil and the principalities and the world rulers of this present darkness, would like to suppress. And that's just true in everything. I mean, insight is almost always suppressed. Um, vision is almost always um, threatening. Truth is highly unnerving to the agencies of falsehood and especially in control. You've heard this before, but we have an interesting instance of it here. Now, um, you may not realize that um, Tarkington, who I quoted uh, last time um, from the conclusion of The Magnificent Ambersons, was in fact an early fan of Charles Fort, F as in Francis, O-R-T, who is now memorialized in the Fortean Society. And Charles Fort was, in fact, not simply a late 19th century um, crank. A little bit of that. A little bit of a rebel, to say the least, who specialized in weird and completely, up to that point, unheard of uh, theories in advanced Western civilization about Martians or Atlantis or uh, various kinds of creatures that we thought were dead but are really alive and various... uh, totally off-the-wall, weirded-out theories of 
various uh, activities and creatures and persons in the universe. But what Fort was really about, he became convinced very early and very profoundly, actually, that um, that the powers that be, especially dogmatic, rational, scientific thought, was in fact um, no more um, credible than irrational, unscientific thought, he, because he saw the nature of the dogmatism. He saw that uh, a system that was completely secular and completely impervious to anything other than what, quote, was before one's eyes, end of quote, which itself was always susceptible to presuppositions. He saw that a rational uh, scientific theory or could become dogma or narrative that chucked out and had no room for other possibilities. In other words, he saw rational thought as closed-minded because it was very often tied, and here low anthropology comes in, <clears throat> supposed rational scientific thought was often tied in with preconceptions on the part of the observer, and we know this from academic life. We know that... Um, tremendous number. I would say most scholarship is undertaken by people who have an agenda, who have some kind of, are in reaction to some other point of view because of their own childhood or background or inner conflicts. And uh, a tremendous amount of so-called research is really just a kind of willful bearing out of previous uh, presuppositions. That's, that's actually true, and I can square that up and down. And every so often you find somebody who's really interested in truth for its own sake. I <clears throat> transferred up to Harvard College as a entering junior because I thought that maybe there, at least, there might be some teachers who were interested in truth for its own sake or the results of research for its own interest's sake. And uh, I found some. There were some. Whether they're there now, I, I don't know. I, I'm not so confident as I used to be. But there were definitely some individuals there, a professor of Greek history here, a professor of Latin poetry there. Um, no theologians, actually, but... Um, maybe one, a church historian named George Williams, but there was um, so much was caught by presuppositions and by emotional, unconscious um, prejudices that it was such a welcome thing to find somebody who really wanted to know what was true. Well, Charles Fort struck a nerve in Booth Tarkington because Booth Tarkington, who was a highly objective realist novelist, um, not a magical realist, but a genuine realist um, with tremendous insight and great empathy and compassion, he thought that Fort, uh, who was regarded as a nut, at least broke the narrative. And uh, he was open to that, and he actually wrote the... Uh, didn't he write the uh, intro to Fort's second large um, sort of novel work of uh, book called New Lands? He did, actually, only because he was interested in someone who was not tied in to presuppositions. And what is uh, what I'm getting at here is the whole question of your and my potential encounter with the kingdom of God. That is to say, what Simeon would say, Zal would say, lies behind the curtain, but we never see. And so the doctrine of providence becomes a way of understanding the fact that God's plans and our plans seldom are the same. And uh, there's a divinity that shapes our ends, rough hew them as we may, to quote uh, Shakespeare. And um, in uh, The Magnificent Ambersons, um, Tarkington, in a most remarkable way, charts something that actually, uh, he describes as actually taking place, which breaks a narrative, but it actually ultimately creates a powerful renewal and second birth narrative. And it's the um, two things about that. It's the, I, I'm, I'm talking to you, I'm talking to my, my listener, 
are you in fact open to the possibility of an actual encounter with God? I was with um, some very reformed academics years ago at uh, where I was the dean of a theological seminary, and they were very self-consciously Calvinist, and um, but self-consciously so. And uh, uh, we were praying for someone who was very sick, and it became very clear to me that the two chaps with whom I was praying didn't really believe in God in any supernatural way. They had absolutely no confidence whatsoever. As a matter of fact, their prayers actually were prefaced by long perorations to quote God that we know that you cannot work beyond or we know that you cannot work because of in terms of our wishes, but we nevertheless in uh, they were so defended for theological reasons on another side of things against a, a personal supernatural God that they really had no confidence. So our prayers were empty and missing. And I realized, oh my gosh, these people don't really believe in a personal God. I'm not saying that God answers every prayer the way we want it to be answered. Far from it. But he does answer every prayer. He answers every aspiration. He answers every aspiration for hope. And what I want the listener to consider today is, are you really permeable to the possibility of a penetration or an outreaching, a beep, 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 you know, a Joe Meek message from Venus. Oh, saga on the, you know, are you, are you, are you open to the possibility of what knocked me flat years ago when my childhood friend appeared to me after his death in a chapel at All Saints Episcopal in Winter Park, or more recently when this old college roommate, this dead college roommate appeared to me on the night that the person died on the night that the person died. And uh, I didn't know that the person was dead. Um, So this is of great interest. Now, what I want to do briefly here, I want to read the short version. Uh, I'm not trying to overwhelm you with Tarkington, but it's worth it. I want to read the short version of the conclusion of uh, the Magnificent Ambersons and say a brief word about it as it relates to um, you and me and our openness. Uh, Morgan, the hero... uh, reflects quite often about the woman that he never did not marry, somebody else married her, but he loved, and he reflects on this. And um, then he hears that the woman's son, by the man that she had married, as opposed to him, has been involved in a terrible accident. And he writes on a train a letter which he instantly is able to post, this is uh, early 20th century, to um, to his, do- his natural daughter. And he says... Um, Speaking of your mother, he writes to, uh, sorry, of the fellow's mother that Morgan once loved. It seemed to me, he writes his daughter, that I had never seen her, the mother, more distinctly or so constantly. But as he came home, he received a letter that had crossed in the mail directly from his daughter, who wrote in response to the news of an accident, but separately and completely without having heard a word from her father, she had written... I've been thinking so constantly of his mother, and it seemed to me that I have never seen her more distinctly. Now, Tarkington writes, If Lucy had not written this letter, Morgan might not have done the odd thing he did that day. The fact that Lucy's letter had crossed his own made Morgan begin to wonder if a phenomenon of telepathy might not be in question, rather than a chance coincidence. The reference to Isabel in the two letters was almost identical. He and Lucy, it appeared, had been thinking of Isabel at the same time, because both said, quote, constantly, end of quote, thinking of her, and neither had ever, quote, seen her more distinctly, end of quote. Now, reflection upon this circumstance has stirred a queer spot in Eugene's brain. He had one. 
Now, remember, I said he then goes and does something very unusual, which you and I are capable of doing, something that would appear from an outside observer completely uh, unexpected. But we all have these, quote, queer spots, these odd and unusual possible openings. And he goes to visit a uh, medium called Mrs. Horner. And um, after a long sort of prelim, Mrs. Horner goes into a trance and she makes contact with Isabel Amberson. And he guesses that it's her because she says something about the woman that she is in a medium speaking to from the afterlife or the other world. And he said, this is what happens. Yes, he was startled, for Mrs. Horner, with her eyes still closed, clapped her hands and the voice cried out in delight. Yes, she says, you know who she is from Amber, Amber, Amber. She says, you understand what her name is from a bell and from Amber. She is laughing and waving a lace handkerchief at me because she is pleased. She says, I have made you know who it is. Now listen to what Tarkington writes. This is the key. This, he writes, was the strangest moment of Eugene's life. Because while it lasted, he believed that Isabel Amberson, who was dead, had found a means to speak to him. Though within ten minutes he doubted it, he believed it then. And then the medium conveys a message from Isabel Amberson, who is dead, to Morgan, a message of astonishing acuity and brilliant application and profound love for someone else, her son, and Morgan, in the last two pages, read the nine-page ending of The Magnificent Ambersons, Morgan is able to translate into action what he has heard from the other world. Now, listen, I mean, this is very important. Um, people just will just freak if you say something that you've had an experience. I was with an extremely gifted man my age, actually about five years older, a brilliantly successful person in uh, in this world's terms, a person who has been brilliantly and beyond anyone's dreams successful in a human sense, and very powerfully and impressively so. I was with this chap who's quite skeptical uh, about elements of supernatural religion, and I grant him, I'm, I'm he, because of where he's coming from in life and childhood, I am, let alone the actual values of possibility themselves i'm i'm very I, I listen to what he has to say and i'm not at all put off by his skepticism and yet he said a curious thing the other night he said um he said you know i've heard too many people that i know have had mystical experiences for me to to uh, to, sl- to 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 immediately disbelieve he said i'm actually not a skeptic he said i have too many friends who've had some form of mystical encounter in their lives friends who are very normal and very rational but who've had some form of mystical experience to immediately deny it and i i, I was very touched by that he said he said so he said you know when you tell me that someone reached out to you who was dead twice um and three times if the truth were fully known then um I'm open to that," he said. I, "Because it it must be true. It, it, we can't be a, absolutely sure, and it's too credible when you, it actually happens to you." Well, I want you to think of that, and I want to say one other thing. <clears throat> I've really gone to town in recent years, as I said in the article that appeared in Mockingbird at the Movies about this movie. The Magnificent Ambersons, in connection to the novel, which I've read to you, I've tried to understand why it was that the ending of the novel, as I've just uh, 
conveyed it to you in the short version, is not only not in the movie, but Wells sort of said that he found it very difficult to film something that was sort of unseen, you might say. Uh, but all the critics, and I mean 100% of them, this movie is extremely celebrated among film fans and scholars of cinema. It is totally celebrated. There are teams of people trying to locate supposedly cut footage from the final version that was edited by the studio while Orson Welles was in South America. And um, they haven't found it. There, there were cuts. There were, the studio did fuss with it. <clears throat> However, there's no evidence whatsoever that uh, what I've just read was in the uh, filmed version. And what's more important is no one who talks, and I mean no one who talks about the Magnificent Ambersons, and there are hundreds and hundreds of uh, discussions of the so-called um, kind of happier ending or studio-produced overly happy ending. Nobody's read the novel. And if they have read the novel, they haven't read the part I've just read, which is the only important part. The entire conclusion of the novel, which is a redemption of a broken relationship and the implications of that for the next generation, is um, that is hinted at in the movie. It is definite in the novel. And people always say, oh, the, they tried to brighten up the dour ending of the novel. Well, obviously, and this is, you'll read it everywhere. I mean, everywhere. These people, A, haven't read the novel, and B, they have not wanted to uh, accept what is obvious in the novel that is, um, that the novel hinges on a supernatural encounter with a dead woman. I think in my um, little blurb for the last podcast, I sort of uh, talked like a like it was a confrontation or something. It's not a confrontation. It's a beloved, touching, reaching out from beyond the grave of a person who is dead but who's deeply concerned about her son, deeply concerned, and enlists the aid of a person who is still living, whom she once knew and knew extremely well, to aid someone who, from whom he has been estranged for good reason. And he reaches out, and there's a radical, radical Christian new beginning made open. So, but you read it, you never, A, everybody hasn't read the novel. I mean, nobody's read the novel. They're all just interested in camera angles, and I like those too, but that nevertheless, and numero due, they, um, they wouldn't, I don't think they'd want to read the ending, because the ending is, has a Fortean quality, Charles Fort. The ending has a, uh, an, a, penet- a, a permeability. And this is a Christian thing, a permeability to the divine action. What did, what did the, the Virgin Mary do when she was, she saw Gabriel came to her and she was open to it. She was completely open to it. She saw and talked with the angel Gabriel who came to her. Uh, the child you will bear is a, a child of the Holy Ghost. And she heard it, every painting in the history of the world from, uh, you know, Botticelli to um, Otto Dix has this uh, picture of a young teenage, an underage girl who receives this extraordinary message of the impregnation in her body, the conception in her body of a divinely um, fathered uh, offspring. And she is, uh, hears it, she's open to it, she opens the door, she listens to it, and she ponders it in her heart, and she doesn't fight it. Um, and we know the extraordinary um, result. Now, that is what you and I need. We need to not be like the critics who don't want to know, even if they do know, and most of them don't even know, that Tarkington um, pegged his literary, artistic, and inspirational life on the experience told in very, very um, realistic terms of a man who is utterly um, 
convinced and in fact is um, presented with a beep, beep, beep message from beyond. And that's what religion is about. And that's what you and I are about and the hopes of our lives. And that gives enormous volume in the sense of volume to these kinds of messages because they are determinative, decisive, and utterly um, stunning. I hope you have one. On that note, we're going to listen to uh, Floyd Robinson's, uh, you'll hear it, My Little Martian, right from the same era we've been pondering. Love you. Well, I was driving home last night when I saw the strangest sight. A shooting star passed by, you see, and landed right in front of me. Then I jumped out of my car so I could see the falling star. But to my surprise, I found a little flying saucer had hit the ground. Stepping up a little closer so I could see A little head popped up in front of me He had a bent antenna sticking from his head And then he looked at me and said 